I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey there, just a note. There's some sensitive material in this episode that deals with death and depression. Lisa Koshin's husband and partner of many years, Sean, died suddenly of a heart condition. One day, not long after, she was in the car with the radio on, and she couldn't believe what she heard. Uh, remember the Sinead O'Connor song, Nothing Compares to You? Yes. Okay. So I don't remember the lyric exactly, but it's something like, it's been... Seven hours and 15 days? Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's been seven hours and 15 days. I'm in my car and that song comes on and I'm listening to the lyrics. You took your love away. And I start doing the math in my head. And it had been exactly that time since Sean died. I don't believe in that stuff, but I don't not believe in that stuff. Everything felt different to Lisa after Sean's death. Songs took on an entirely new meaning, even Sinead O'Connor covering Prince. But as she came to terms with her grief, Lisa confronted a question she never thought she'd have to answer. How do you know when to move past mourning and date new people? How do you know you're ready? From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Here we are, the final episode of season three. The question we took on this season, how do you know, was a challenging one. We tried to answer it a bunch of different ways, with nipple piercings, a marriage maze, even an easy-bake oven. Today, we're exploring one of the hardest things to talk about, how to know when it's okay to date again after losing someone you love. Lisa is a friend and former coworker of mine. My heart broke for her when Sean died in 2006. Her story is all about learning to move forward when it feels impossible. But before we get to that story, I want to check in one final time with Lance, the man we've been following throughout this season. Lance has been wrestling with a very different question, whether or not to stay in his marriage after realizing he's bisexual. Since we last spoke to him, he and his wife have been to counseling together to talk about whether their monogamous relationship was still tenable. My producer Amy and I called him up. Hi, Amy. Hi there. It's Meredith. Oh, hi, Meredith. Hi there. I, I always feel like I'm surprising you when I'm like, hey, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I wanted to check in and, and just find out, you know, last we spoke, you were waiting for a therapy appointment, which I know can take a while, actually. So I'm wondering how that all went down and, and if you actually got in to see someone. 
We did. Um, we actually have been in a couple of times since we last spoke. And the actual sessions, I think, turned out really well. I think we made a lot of headway, covered a lot of ground. <laughs> there is so much more to cover still. So much more. But <laughs> It's so interesting talking to you over the last few months. You know, you'll you'll mention that the hope here is to preserve the marriage and to be able to remain in this relationship that's so important to you and to preserve a family, right? A, a sort of way of having a family that you've built. And, Absolutely. And yet there's this part of you also that, you know, you've said you don't want to have to go without a certain kind of experience in life. When you talk in therapy about possibilities uh, for staying together, do you have a conversation about what those possibilities might be? So we haven't talked a whole lot about, you know, what what maybe some of these alternative situations might look like. Um, I think those are kind of off the table still uh, indefinitely. So, you know, the, the things that I've had to look at myself and understand have kind of pulled the rug out from under both of us. And so there's really not a lot that's fair in that. But, you know, of course, life's not fair. Yeah. I am an unmarried single person without children, right? So a lot of these questions are like, I'm surprised anyone can make them ever. (laughs) I I give you all so much credit. (laughs) And what we think we know about our promises might, you know, we might not know much at all, you know, especially when we couple up young, right? Like, what you know you're signing up for. I, I'm not entirely sure that that's something you can ever truly understand until you're in it, like parenting. I think you're right, when, especially when you enter into, you know, that kind of commitment young. You don't know how you're going to change and you don't know how the other person is going to change. And it, if you're not sharing that internal journey with your partner, with your spouse, you guys will grow apart and none of you will be the wiser until it reaches some kind of breaking point. And that's what I discovered in my life. You know, I've, I've just really been trying to pay attention to my innermost gut, my conscience, that spark that I think is deep down inside each of us that tells us when we're on the right track so that no matter where I end up, I will know that I made the right choice, that I ended up where I need to be. Before I hung up, I asked Lance to keep us posted on how it all works out. It's been an absolute, you know, lovely thing to talk to you about this along the way. And and we're so grateful because I think there are a lot of people that have learned from your experience and are really at a crossroads themselves. So thank you for being so forthcoming and, and transparent about what you're dealing with. Well, I sure hope so. And you are most welcome. Thank you, Meredith. So today's show is about grief and how you know you're ready to find a new partner after losing someone you love. If you've listened to Love Letters from the beginning, you've heard me use this phrase, breakups are worse than death. This idea came out of a conversation with my friend Lisa, whose story you'll hear today. Lisa and I were having dinner together one night after I'd been dumped. I was not dealing well with the breakup. She had recently lost her husband. They were in their mid-30s, and he died very suddenly. 
Meanwhile, here I was whining about somebody breaking up with me. The reality of this hit me, and I apologized to Lisa for my ridiculousness. But then Lisa looked at me and said something like, oh no, breakups can be worse in some ways than death. Because if my husband Sean were still alive, he'd want to be with me. And your ex is right down the street, breathing, heart beating, and he's chosen not to be with you. I have to say it was harsh, but it was also validating as someone who'd just been dumped. Today, though, I want to talk about Lisa. Let's start at the beginning. Right after college, when Lisa was in her 20s, she was living in Moscow teaching English. Soon after arriving in Russia, she meets Sean. He's part of this group of expats who hang out and go to clubs together. It's like they're still in college, but in a new country. Things move fast for Lisa and Sean. We fell in love really quickly, and then because we were stupid 20-somethings, we moved in together really quickly. We started dating about a month after we met, and then we moved in together about a month after that, and then lived together for 10 years. I'm originally from South Texas, and he's from New Jersey. So he loved to joke that I had to go all the way to Moscow to meet a nice Jersey boy. So Sean was larger than life. He was so funny and so smart. He was the kind of person who, like, you'd be at a party, and he'd be the person that everybody would surround him and listening to him tell nearly true stories of his adventures and misadventures, right? Like, he was, he could grab the spotlight. And that was one of the things that drew me to him was his sense of humor. Lisa and Sean moved to Kiev for a while. She works for a program promoting democracy in the former Soviet Union. Sean gets a job as an editor at an English-language newspaper. Eventually, they move back to the U.S. The relationship hits some bumps, but they decide to stay together. So I was questioning everything. I was questioning, I was, what do I want to do with my life? Is this really the guy I want to be with? Because now moving in together felt more permanent. Because it wasn't just like, well, we're going to be here for a year. So we'll, you know, we'll live together for a year. Or, two, you know, Kiev turned into two years, but it was always... When they get back to the States, they take a nine-week-long road trip together all around the country. The whole time we're on this road trip, I have, like, what color is your parachute and, like, all this pile of find-yourself books. And I am trying to figure out what I want to do. And I decide that what's really important to me is to do something creative. Lisa lands on journalism. She eventually gets hired at the Boston Globe, shortly before I do, Sean also decides to go into publishing and discovers a passion for food writing. They start to build a life together in Boston. It had to have been kind of nice to live with someone who was cooking a lot. Oh, it was amazing. And I look back now and I'm so ashamed of myself because I used to complain about doing the dishes. And I'm so ashamed of that. I'm sorry, Sean. I'm really sorry about that one. Lisa and Sean get engaged in 2000. He puts rose petals everywhere and he gets champagne, and he does the whole proposal thing. They get married a few years later. Their lives are good. Maybe too good, Lisa thinks. And I had kind of a nervous breakdown because I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm used to turmoil. I'm used to things not working out. Like, this is not, this is not comfortable. I had always been sort of fixated on losing someone I loved because my sister died when I was young. Anytime I got close to anyone, like I did with Sean, I was always a little more anxious about losing them than a normal person would be. But Sean 
is a source of comfort. He reassures her. They'll deal with this anxiety as a team, he says. You're not just in it alone. That was the first time I think I really understood what that meant. And then, you know, it was only, you know, maybe a year, year and a half after that, that he died. The night it happens, it's so ordinary. Sean is cooking dinner at home, a dish his friend had developed. He wants to cook it for Lisa. He kept calling me because when he cooked, he wanted it to be fresh and perfect for whoever he cooked for. Like, he did not want to go to all that trouble and then have it sit for half an hour. I remember exactly what it was. It was whole wheat pasta, which usually tastes like cardboard unless you cook it this one particular way, with white beans and greens and bacon. And there must be a lot of Parmesan in there, too. And, um, and I went home, and we had dinner, and we were having not an argument, thank God, but a disagreement over when to take our vacation. He was really stressed out about work, and he really wanted to take a vacation. He just wanted to go to an island anywhere. He didn't care where. He just wanted to, like, sit somewhere on a beach and have a Mai Tai. Then we got up to go to bed. You know, it was probably, like, 10 o'clock by then. And we were walking upstairs, and I remember him saying, oh, I'm really tired. But that wasn't, you know, that wasn't weird. That wasn't unusual. You know, we were both working all the time, and so we were both tired a lot. And we got into bed, and we were both reading. And I remember wanting him to turn out the light. And the next thing I knew, I woke up to, it's, and in my memory, it's in slow motion. It really is. It's in slow motion. I remember the sound before I remember seeing anything like nothing I'd ever heard before. It was like, I knew he wasn't snoring, but I knew something was wrong. I'm fumbling around in the dark, and I finally get the light on, and then I see him, and I instantly knew something was horribly, horribly wrong because he was gasping for air, and he was wild-eyed. And so I called 911, and I'm screaming, and I'm crying, and I'm saying the address over and over because I just want—I'm trying to be, like, I just want an ambulance to get here, and I, I, I want to make sure they understand me. He was starting to turn blue, and then he stopped breathing. I had it in my head that he was somehow choking, which didn't, doesn't make any sense, but I had it in my head he was choking. And so I was trying to clear his airway, and I was still on the phone with the dispatcher— And I could see the red and blue lights out the bedroom window as I had my hand down his throat. And he started to breathe. And I was screaming into the phone, they're going to have to kick down the door. I can't leave him. I have my hand, you know, I'm helping him breathe. And then he stopped breathing again. And I ran downstairs and I couldn't open the door because they were doing that thing where they're trying to break down the door. I was, like, standing near the door and trying to figure out if I could quickly unlock it and get out of the way. And the door came flying open. And we ran upstairs. It was a two-story townhouse-style condo. And we ran upstairs. They said, why don't you go into the other room and write down his—they were trying to give me a task. Write down his age, any medications he's on. So I go into the other room, and they're trying to keep me out of the room. and And I remember just falling to my knees at one point. And I'm not religious, but I just fell to my knees, and I put my hands in this prayer. And I was like, please, please, please let me stay. I promise I'll be quiet. I promise I'll be quiet. Lisa is brought to a police car. She calls Sean's parents from the front seat. An officer drives her to the hospital. 
I was crying and I was upset, but it was like, I felt like I couldn't convey, like, this is life or death. And I, and it was just, it was just the scariest thing I'd ever experienced. It was, you know, I felt just completely alone because he was, you know, I'm in the cop car, he's in the ambulance, and I'm just frozen with fear. Her friend Erica meets her at the hospital. They sit in a family meeting room for about an hour. Lisa eventually goes to the bathroom to splash water on her face. And Erica came in and said, the doctor's looking for you, but take your time. And I went out and the doctor was waiting for me. And he said, I'm so sorry. We did everything we could. We worked on him longer than we normally would because he's so young, but he's gone. And I just, you know, like fell apart. I mean, completely fell apart. And I ran to the bathroom. I thought I was going to throw up. And, you know, I was just sobbing. And I remember Eric and I sitting in that room and I said, you know what? I think I want to start smoking again. He had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is kind of a famous ailment for knocking down athletes in their prime. And every once in a while, you'll read about, you know, a high school kid dropping dead on the baseball field or, you know, someone dropping dead on a basketball court. And it's usually young men. It's usually someone high school, college age. And it is basically something you're born with. It's genetic. It's you're born with it, but there are no symptoms. Hours later, Lisa returns to the home she shared with Sean. This was the darkest place I've ever been in. The first couple of days, I wasn't planning anything, but I was comforted by the idea that if I couldn't take any more, I could go into the garage and turn on the car and fall asleep forever. I found that thought very comforting. So I knew I needed to help myself. We'll be right back after a short break. We're back. Lisa didn't have a roadmap for grief. She didn't know how she was supposed to feel, how widows were supposed to behave. Like, what was normal if there was such a thing? People say stupid shit when something like this happens because they just want to feel fill the silence. And one of those things was literally like the day after he died. Are you going to observe a formal mourning period? Like, was Google even around so you could Google what the, what the <laughs> fuck is formal mourning period? Because, of I course... Think I, I think I actually said to the person, what the fuck is that? Yeah, what the fuck is that? Um, so I think I eventually Googled it. And for some reason, two years sticks in my mind. But I, I don't know where I got that from. That could be historical. That could be... What is it two like, weeks after Sean's like, death, oh, she decides she needs more support than her family and friends can provide. 
she needs to connect with other people who know what she's going through. I went to the support group, which was in a nursing home, which is like the last place you want to go when you feel like you're like 80. You know, like I was 34 and I felt like I was 80. You know, the first time I heard the word widow was just, you know, maybe a couple days after Shonda, I was like, I'm a widow? What? That's the weirdest word to assign yourself when you're 34 years old. She starts going to the group religiously. I said, my name is Lisa. My husband, Sean, died um, of a heart condition we didn't know he had, and we had no children. And that was just, that's what I would say every week at the beginning. I said it over and over and over. A day or two after Sean died, Lisa got a message from his dad. His family wanted to give her their blessing to move on, to meet someone new and have a fulfilling life. And I just sobbed, and I was repulsed by the idea that I was going to go on, you know? And I was almost mad at him. In retrospect, it's the kindest thing anyone's ever said to me. Lisa had given herself a rough timeline of one year to not even think about dating. And she takes that year seriously. It's really the first time she's been single since high school. It's a time of self-reflection. You know what? I hate bike riding. I mean, I hate it. I've never liked it. I've been forcing myself to do it for years. I'm not doing it anymore. But these are the kind of things that I had not allowed myself to figure out because I was always wrapped up in some guy. So after Sean died, I spent a whole year just figuring out stupid shit like that. And it sounds so basic and kind of pathetic because it's like, you know, shouldn't you have some of that stuff worked out maybe in, when you're in your early 20s or something? Like, shouldn't you kind of have some sense of self once you get out of college? But I didn't. Around this time, Lisa starts to really bond with people in her support group. She makes new friends. One of them is a guy we'll call Ethan. Ethan had lost his pregnant wife four months before Lisa lost Sean. They strike up a friendship. It feels like it has potential. Slowly, we started emailing each other, you know, and this was before texting. So I remember being excited to come into work to see if he had sent me an email, you know. And then we started calling each other. And then eventually we would start, you know, meeting up and just going out for dinner. And at first it was all talking about what we had lost. You know, the relationship was about our grief. But then we started laughing, you know. <laughs> then we started joking around and, you know, developed like a real friendship. A few members of the support group actually go on vacation together to Mexico and the Dominican Republic. Lisa goes, so does Ethan. Kind of trying to ignore him as much as I can on certain days and then flirting with him the next day. It's so high school. It is so high. It's like we were on spring break and we're maybe at best 21 years old mentally because that's back where we were. I mean, neither of us had dated in more than 10 years. And so we were just fumbling through it. I always wanted to go walk on the beach at night. I kept dragging everybody down to the beach at night. And one of those nights, he was the only one who came down with me. And we ended up, like, laying down on these, you know, sort of lounge chairs. And he said something like, I'm, I'm afraid to try and I'm afraid not to try.
and I knew exactly what he was talking about. And um, he said, so I gave you one year and three days. Is that enough? <laughs> and I um, said, well, that's, I did say one year. You're right about that. And, you know, when we kiss for the first time, it's like, I'm falling in love with this guy. Which was absolutely terrifying. Because I still, I mean, I was still in love with my husband. You know, when you've been with somebody for such a long time and, you know, you have it in your head that, you know, you've said for better or for worse, you know, till death do us part. But you you don't think of it as, you think of it as both of your deaths, you know. You don't, you just, you never, you never conceive of moving on, you know. So that's a hard, that's a hard bridge to cross. At this point, Lisa feels like she's ready to cross that bridge. But it becomes clear that Ethan isn't quite as ready. She wants a more serious relationship than he can provide. They break things off. It's sad at first, but Lisa realizes maybe she's okay alone. Like, maybe she doesn't need anyone else. She's less afraid of this now. She'd spent a year on her own. So I get to this point. So it's, you know, August, September. And I get to this point where I'm... You know, like, okay, that sucked. Too bad that didn't work out, but I'm going to be okay. And I just ride that wave for a little while. And then my friend Meg says, hey, she, so she just broken up with some guy. And she said, hey, I want to do this. I want to try the speed dating. It was eight-minute dating. And I was like, oh, my God. Lisa agrees to go, but with super low expectations. A sociological expedition. The drinks are flowing. Vodka shots at the bar. This guy comes over to her table. His name is Jim. He sits down. He says, so what do you like to do besides drink? And I was like, that's a good opening line. That's kind of funny. I had no interest in him romantically. He was unemployed and he hadn't finished college. So I completely, and I was a total snob. I completely wrote him off as not my type. But I couldn't escape the idea that he was fun. And I really liked him. So he gets my contact info And I'm still thinking, you know, like, like he's a friendship match. And I told him right off, I was like, look, I was recently widowed, and then I got out of this relationship, and I am not looking to date right now. My God, you had the best excuse to not want to go out with people. You could reject anybody without making them feel bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They go on some other outings, but nothing romantic yet. Then one night, they see a movie. Jim's pick, not the best. Oh, God, it was um, about a widower. So it was, uh, what's, it's the Steve Carell movie. His face is on the... Oh, um, Dan in Real... Yes. Dan in Real Life. Okay. We go to see that, and he knew what it was about, but I didn't know what it was about. And I sat like this. I put as much distance between the two of us as I could in side-by-side movie theater seats. I wasn't mad at him, but I was just like, Ugh, you know, like, how could you bring me to this movie? And this, I, this is the last thing I want to see right now. But then something happens at a bar after that movie. You know, I said, I, you know, I'm just really not ready to date right now. And he, he went up to, like, he went up to the bar to get us drinks or something. And he came back and he just kissed me. And it was a really good kiss. And I said, More. And we kissed again. (laughs) And that was it. Despite Lisa's initial reservations, something about this new relationship with Jim 
just feels right. It clicks. It was the kind of relationship that just makes you feel safe and warm. Like, he totally understood me. He wasn't intimidated by anything. He wasn't intimidated by the fact that I had just been, you know, that I had been widowed. He wasn't, you know, nothing. Nothing scared him. Jim's kind of one of those old soul personalities. He just gets emotional stuff better than most people do. And I felt such a deep connection to him. And not long after we started dating, I kind of had a sense. I was like, I think this is the guy. Worth mentioning, Ethan did try to get back together with Lisa at one point, and she considered it. But after some reflection, she knew exactly what her gut was telling her. I think I knew that I need to be with a person who sees me. And I remember telling one of my friends, not too long after I had figured this all out, I was like, you know, if this is morbid, but this is where my brain was at the time. If Jim and I have kids together and something horrible happens to me, Jim will be able to tell our children who I was. With Jim, I felt loved. He gets me. He knows me, and he loves me for exactly who I am. Lisa and Jim get engaged in August 2008 and marry that December. They buy a house outside of Boston and have a son. They've been together ever since. When people say, how do I know if I'm ready? What would you say? I don't, you know, it's, there's always going to be some part of that that's a leap of faith. You're never going to know, no. But I do think I knew that I needed that year, you know, aside from the obvious grieving process and aside from the fact that, you know, you have to be able to let go to some extent before you can move on. I also needed that time just as much to work on myself and and figure out who I really was and what I cared about. But I think that knowing if you're ready, I think is really a question of knowing yourself. You know, at the end of the day, I think I'm a very practical person. And I think that it's about time. Like, do you want to spend 10 years feeling kind of shitty? Or do you want to spend, like, a year feeling super-duper shitty and just get it over with? That was kind of my approach. Like, there is no way except through it. If you try to go around it, you're just going to prolong it. But there's no moment where you're, like, done with grief. There's no finish line. I talk about Sean all the time, you know? It doesn't usually anymore knock me sideways and make me sob but occasionally it does and yeah you're never done it changes over time but you're never done so here's the thing not everyone who's lost a partner will be ready to date after a year lisa's one year might be someone else's five I think the biggest lesson from her story is that she needed to feel secure on her own before she could be good with anyone else. Another lesson? Ethan, the support group guy, truly understood Lisa's grief because he'd been through it himself. But that didn't necessarily make him the best partner. I mean, we all want to be with someone who gets us. But Jim, who had not lost a spouse, saw Lisa better than anyone else. He didn't need to live it to be able to understand her. In so many of the stories we've told this season, I've noticed a common theme. 
a lot of people describe feeling seen. That's how they knew it was real with someone else. We've also heard multiple stories about people who made relationship choices out of some sense of obligation, but those usually didn't end well. And we heard from people who made confident choices young and then felt differently later in life. That happens. It doesn't mean the first choice was wrong. Life isn't static. When it comes to knowing, all you can do is listen to your intuition and make the wisest choice before you. Pay attention to those lightning bolts of excitement and those nagging feelings of doubt. Our guts are all powerful, I think. They're the thing we have to trust most. Lisa Koshin is working on a book about her experience. Big thanks to her and to everyone who shared their stories with us this season. It's so cold here without you Alone but glad I found you A warm place in my heart, dear Where your face seems to whisper from the candlelight. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Our senior producer is Amy Padula. Our executive producer is Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith is our audience engagement manager. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. We'll be back soon with a new season, I promise. But in the meantime, I want your letters. Email the team at loveletters@boston.com with your love problems or find us on Twitter at loveletters_blog. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more at loveletters.show. And remember, you never know what you'll find at a speed dating event. I had 7 dates, 3 of them were into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And three? They yeah, they didn't know each other. Like, what? How does that happen? <laughs> Out of a random sampling of seven guys, three of them are into Brazilian jiu-jitsu? And they're not friends. They don't know each other. So. I hope they met. <laughs> I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.